0: This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia builds secure networks that keep America strong. That's why 90% of the U.S. depends on Nokia to stay connected. Learn more at Nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, August 20th. In today's news... President Trump praises the baseless QAnon conspiracy theory. The centers that help child abuse victims have seen 40,000 fewer kids amid the pandemic. And the leader of the Russian opposition to Vladimir Putin is gravely ill after drinking allegedly poisoned tea. But first, the big idea. Kamala Harris, the Black daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica, became the first woman of color to accept the nomination for vice president from a major political party during the third night of the Democratic convention here. She said, Our country is at an inflection point, with constant chaos that leaves us adrift, incompetence that makes us afraid, and callousness that makes us feel alone. She spoke here at the Chase Center on a small stage, witnessed by only a small group of reporters who had been tested for the coronavirus before being granted entry. It was definitely awkward, but these are awkward times. She was joined on stage afterward by Joe and Jill Biden, who kept social distance, and her husband, Doug. Harris introduced herself as the daughter of Shyamala, who emigrated to the U.S. from India with a dream of curing cancer before she died in 2009. Her dad... Came from Jamaica to study economics. They met during the Civil Rights Movement in Berkeley in the 1960s. Speaking before Harris from a Revolutionary War museum just up the road in Philadelphia, Barack Obama delivered his most stinging attack to date on President Trump. Obama said Trump has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, and no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. The former president even appeared to choke up as he recounted a meeting in the Oval Office when he was president with civil rights leaders, including one man who was arrested for protesting injustice in the South on the very day that he was born in Hawaii. The two-hour program reflected a major effort by Democrats to showcase the diversity of their party and the multiracial coalition that they hope will lift Biden, a 77-year-old white man, to the White House. Only one non-Hispanic white man Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, was given a prominent slot on Wednesday during the broadcast. He co-hosted a segment interviewing struggling small business owners, along with the Mexican-American mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. The rest of the lineup included New Mexico's Michelle Lujan Grisham, the first Democratic Hispanic woman elected as a governor, who talked about climate change, Hillary Clinton, the first woman to top the ticket of a major party, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the first woman to lead the People's House, Clinton said people have often told her they didn't realize how dangerous Trump was and that they should have voted back in 2016. She said, quote, This can't be another woulda, coulda, shoulda election. Now, Trump reacted to all the speeches in real time on Twitter with a string of all caps tweets that resurrected his crooked Hillary nickname and that accused Obama without evidence of spying on him. Perhaps the most poignant moment of the night was a video. During a portion of the program that dealt with immigration, an 11-year-old, Estella Juarez, an American citizen, read aloud an open letter that she wrote to Trump describing the pain of her mother's deportation to Mexico. Her mom came to our country when she was a young teenager. Her dad is a decorated Marine, but now she and her dad are alone in the United States. Estella said in her letter, quote, we need a president. will bring people together, not tear them apart. Tonight, the convention wraps up with Joe Biden delivering his acceptance speech. He's been dreaming of this moment for almost 50 years now. This, of course, is not the way he thought it would happen, but he'll get to speak on the same stage where Harris appeared last night, just a few miles from his house. Someone who thrives on speaking extemporaneously, feeding off his audience and often frustrating his staff by veering off script, Biden has been working to craft a speech without built-in applause lines, knowing he won't get laughter or cheers. One of Biden's very favorite movies is The King's Speech, which depicts the unlikely ascension to the throne of King George VI, who needs to overcome a speech impediment and address his countrymen after the Nazi onslaught pulls the kingdom into World War II. King George, who was Queen Elizabeth's father, struggled to conquer a stutter just like Biden. And in the end, he did. In some ways, Biden's speech tonight will be like the climactic scene in that film, which depicts the king in a quiet room, taking a microphone to speak to an anxious country over the radio. Biden will address an America where 170,000 of our fellow countrymen have died from the coronavirus and where tens of millions are out of work. His speechwriters tell us that the pressure of this moment weighs heavily on him and he's determined to meet it. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, pressed last night at a White House briefing about the online movement QAnon, which the FBI identifies as a potential domestic terrorist threat. President Trump claimed not to know anything about it other than the affection that its adherents have for him. He said they like him very much, which he appreciates, adding, quote, I heard these are people that love our country. QAnon believes Trump is secretly saving the world from a cult of pedophiles and cannibals inside the government. Asked about that, Trump said, quote, I'm willing to put myself out there and we are actually saving the world. QAnon followers lit up in response to the president's comments, with users writing in all caps that the remarks validated their movement. Others were aghast. Jeb Bush, the former Florida governor who ran against Trump in 2016, tweeted, Why in the world would the president not kick QAnon's supporters' butts? Bush said they are, quote, Nut jobs, racists, and haters who have no place in either party. And Facebook yesterday, before Trump's comments, banned about 900 pages or groups and 1,500 ads tied to QAnon. Separately, Trump urged supporters not to buy Goodyear tires after the company banned workers on its assembly lines from wearing his campaign hats. The company is headquartered in Ohio and one of the largest employers there. The president's limo also uses Goodyear tires. Number two, child abuse reports began to plummet across the country this spring. Tragically, this is most likely not because it stopped happening. It's because teachers, doctors, and others suddenly had fewer ways of catching it or interacting with adolescents, crying out for help. Now, a survey of children's advocacy centers across the country offers some of the clearest data yet on the scope of this gap in child abuse reporting. Samantha Schmidt reports that the centers, which provide support for families and children as abuse cases move through the justice system, reported serving 40,000 fewer children nationwide between January and June of this year compared to the same period last year, from 192,000 children in 2019 to 152,000 this year, a 21% drop. This is one of the several considerations that weighs on policymakers as they decide whether to reopen schools and bring kids back for in-person learning. But there are obviously lots of competing interests, And the union, representing New York City's public school teachers, is saying that its members now will not return to classrooms next month unless the city meets their demands for health and safety, including testing every student and staff member and ensuring that all schools have a nurse on site. That announcement comes a week after Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio said schools would reopen in September for in-person classes. He argued that the city's low positivity rate, less than one quarter of one percent, allows for students to learn safely in person. In Detroit yesterday, 91% of members of the teachers' union there voted to authorize a potential safety strike over reopening plans. The union says its roughly 4,000 members will refuse to teach in-person classes. And we keep getting almost hourly reports about society chafing at the edges. A man outside of Philadelphia allegedly punched a teenage employee at the face, in the face, breaking his jaw, at a Sesame Street theme park after he was asked to wear a mask. The worker is now in the hospital, and the man has been charged with assault. Number three. Alexei Navalny, Russia's main opposition figure, is in a coma this morning after drinking a cup of tea earlier today that his spokeswoman said she suspects was deliberately laced with poison. Navalny started to feel ill during a flight to Moscow from the Siberian city of Tomsk, leading the pilot to make an emergency landing in Omsk, where he was taken to a local hospital and is now on a ventilator. Navalny was traveling to Tomsk as part of an initiative to promote a tactical voting strategy to oppose pro-Putin candidates in next month's regional elections. Our Moscow bureau chief reports that the 44-year-old has faced constant and unrelenting harassment and violence from the state. A year ago, Navalny was hospitalized with an acute allergic reaction a week after being detained by the government. In 2017, he was attacked with an antiseptic green dye that badly damaged vision in one of his eyes. As an outspoken critic of the Kremlin, he was blocked from running for president in 2018 against Putin. He's been frequently jailed and harassed by hoodlums who follow him around. This March, Russian authorities seized the contents of his bank account, as well as the accounts of his wife, son, and daughter. In 2018, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Russia's arrests and detention of Navalny from 2012 to 2014 clearly violated his rights. Last month, Navalny was forced to close his anti corruption foundation that had exposed graft and other wrongdoing by Russia's elite and Putin's cronies for more than a decade. Unfortunately, poisoning dissidents is a tactic straight out of the KGB playbook. In 2018, Sergei Skripal, a former double agent, and his adult daughter, Yulia, were poisoned in the UK after they came into contact with a deadly Soviet-era nerve agent known as Novichok. In 2006, Alexander Litvienko, a former spy and prominent critic of the Putin regime, died of polonium-210 poisoning in London. On his deathbed, he identified Putin as responsible. The polonium had been in his tea. And that's the Daily 202 for Thursday, August 20th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.